Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and Matt is not with me today because he has since flown back to the United States in search of tacos, he told me. But I am I am currently in Swaziland, and you can hear the sound of the birds and animals behind us. In fact, there's a sign that says, pretty much don't go over that wall because there's hippos and crocodiles within feet of our current location. And Swaziland is beautiful. And I'm here with two great friends, two guys that I met on a Land Rover trip in Peru. And we've got Alan Shenton, and we've also got Joe Fleming. And these guys are with Bonafide Moto Company. And most importantly, they're good buddies. We we enjoyed traveling together before, and when they heard that I was coming to Africa, they said, let's go to Swaziland on motorcycles. So they were kind enough to line up a Triumph for me. So I've been riding a 1200 XE, thanks to Triumph of South Africa. And Joe's been riding a an 800 Triumph. Yeah, Tiger 800. And then, Alan, what have you been riding? A 900 Street Scrambler. 900 Street Scrambler. Nice. So thanks for being here, guys. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, we're going to talk about some fun and varied subjects, just as our ride has been fun and and varied as well. So, um, and we'll do our very best to keep this family friendly. <laughs> There's been threatens to the contrary. <laughs> so, so yeah, this this place is amazing. We're at Milwaukee, which is a, a game reserve close to the the western border of Swaziland. And it was so cool. I, I pull up to the gate and for these guys, they've been here a bunch of times and it's, I wouldn't say it's old hat, but it wasn't a new experience for them. So I pull in through the gate and here's zebra everywhere and really neat to see, I think maybe even a springbok that we saw when we came through. Bless uh, Nice. Yeah. So speaking of zebra, uh, Alan, before he started being the adventurer that he is today, he was the guitar man for for zebra and giraffe, right? That, that's it. Yep. So tell me a little bit about your music career. Yeah, so uh, I played in a couple bands over about a 12-year period. I started in a band called Harris Tweed, uh, which became Dear Reader. And Dear Reader was quite successful. It was a very um, alternative singer-songwriter with, with a female vocalist. Uh, nice. Really you know, indie, super indie. Um, and the, the front lady of that band immigrated to Germany and she carried on. She still has a career to this day. Um, and then a friend of mine had started a band called Zebra and Giraffe, and I joined that band, and I played for Zebra and Giraffe for about nine, ten years after that. And I was really fortunate to have been quite successful in it. Um, traveled the world, I've been to Japan, played in Kenya, we recorded an album in Los Angeles, or no, we recorded an album in California, just outside San Francisco, in a town called Stinson Beach. We rented a, an amazing studio then, recorded an album, and we've played big festivals we played small clubs and, and i'm very very grateful to have done it professionally for like 12 years all in all well and one of the one of the recent ones in fact i believe it was your last concert you opened up for the cure that's significant yeah the cure was coming to south africa they were playing two shows johannesburg and cape town and the promoter andy mack really amazing fan of ours supporter of our music had invited us to do a reunion show to play to open for them and, and we accepted and it was amazing it was really yeah, cool to share a stage with rock legends yeah for sure and then 
I think you were in another festival with Metallica. And then what was, you said one of your most favorite bands to play with was? Our, our favorite band to play with was The Killers. Yeah. Um, we, we were their only support act in South Africa and we opened two sh- three shows with them two in Cape Town I think one in Joburg or other way around two in Joburg one in Cape Town um, they, they were a great band and it was very poignant for the time as 2009 2010 they were at the top of their career we were at the top of our career at the time and yeah, it was amazing playing with like-minded musicians and also just like-minded music like uh, to be able to share a stage in South Africa so far away from the rest of the world and here we are watching music or listening to music um, that was so closely aligned um, just the, right about the right time for like that indie rock uh, alternative music. Well, and it, it leads to a bunch of questions, but the first thing that comes to mind was, did you already have a passion for travel before you started traveling as, as a musician or, or was it when you started to travel as a musician that you started to to see, like, I want to go see the world. Yeah, I always, I always had a passion to travel. Um, my mom and my dad instilled an absolute love for our country, South Africa, and for the the parks that we have in our country uh, from a very young age. And they dragged us off to Kruger National Park at least two, three times a year, every single year. And we loved traveling. We never saw other parts of the country, but we always went to the game reserve. That was what we did two, three times a year. So I loved traveling. I've always been a fan of traveling. And one of my favorite things about being in the band in South Africa was to be able to get in the car or the van and drive the coast, the length and breadth of this country and the people that we would meet along the way and the places that we would see it. <laughs> Truly, I don't think, I don't, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I don't think there's anywhere where, where you can go in the world where you will see such varied terrain from the beaches to the bush, to the towns, to the big cities, to the small towns and so on and so forth. It's just, it's an incredible place to travel. And I was, I count myself very fortunate that I was one of the few people that got to do it year on year, over and over again. And then every night to be able to perform music in front of people uh, that truly enjoyed what you did. Yeah, and I have to agree with you. I think that of all of the places that I've traveled, South Africa pulls me back the most. Southern Africa pulls me back the most. Between the Namib, which is one of the oldest deserts in the world with the tallest sand dunes in the world, and then you've got the Kalahari just to the north and Rhino and the Okavanga Delta. I mean, it's it's literally the birthplace of humanity as we know it, and, and it really draws me back. And and Joe, that kind of leads me like what brought you from being in 11 Bravo Army to living now full time in in South Africa? Uh, it was Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, long story short, uh, before so I've been in South Africa now for just over six years. And prior to this, I was living in California. Uh, I'm originally from North Carolina. And I had a job after college uh, working for a defense contractor. I got that job through being a veteran. I'd been to Iraq in 2004, kind of midway through college. And the job had taken me to New York for four years. And then they transferred me to San Diego, which I, I loved. I imagine. It was, it was everything. Having, I think I lived four blocks from the beach, had the mountains, had a great job. I had a Harley there, got to ride along Sunset Cliffs just about every day. And then shortly, say about five, six months into living there, I'd come across this girl on Instagram who lived in South Africa. I'd actually come across her boyfriend at the time. And he had, he was into like choppers and like rat rods. And somehow I found him. And then he had this girlfriend. And I'm like, cool, I'll follow her. No problem. And after months of just being followers, not, I'd never thought anything of it. She had sent me a friend request on, on Facebook 
And I wake up one morning on the way, just, just about to go to work. And I'm like, that's that hot chick from South Africa. <laughs> like, I'm going to accept and then I'm going to get to work. I'm not going to do a thing. I'm going to just stalk her photos. <laughs> and um, I ended up not being able to stalk her photos. We ended up messaging back and forth for hours. And, and then basically three months later, I had taken a trip to South Africa, stayed here for three weeks to get to meet her, her son, uh, met her ex-husband, family members. We traveled to Cape Town and I really got to see what South Africa offered. And, and living in the States, I had no idea what South Africa was like. I didn't know, I didn't really know that it is what it is. And I loved it. And so I went back to the States, um, went back to work and was miserable. And, and luckily at the time, working for a defense contractor, they were going through budget cuts with the government. And there was some voluntary layoffs that were available to people. And I had a coworker who was like, like you're miserable like you love this chick like why don't you just take a layoff and move and I was like I think that's a great idea and so I did that and then basically two months after I'd left South Africa uh, I was back I had sold two of my Harleys I had like old heritage soft tail I had a chopper that was in boxes yes yeah. <laughs> Randy if you're listening I'm sorry that you still own that Harley <laughs> that's still in boxes um and sold all my stuff, and I moved here with three suitcases. And, and what a story, man! That's amazing. Yeah, and what's so funny is that I probably have thrown away one suitcase. I realized like I really didn't need all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so now it's been six years here, and it's been like I absolutely love this place. It's it's an incredible country, and um, which is great. And that's why, you know, we have Bonafide Modica. Was that I wanted to travel the country. And, and ultimately I wanted to share that experience with uh, locals here, but also wanted to show that, show the beauty of South Africa to my friends in the States um, who, you know, more than likely they don't know much about South Africa. And so I think through me, they've been able to see how beautiful this place is. And slowly I've gotten a few people to come here and hopefully many more will come. So the first question that comes to my mind is is not so much the travel because I can see that that just runs through your veins, but where did that creative impetus come from? Your photography is, I believe, world class for what you do, and Thanks, and we featured you several times in Overland Journal magazine and on Expedition Portal. And what prompted that passion or that desire to become a photographer? So I think ever since I was a kid, I always do thank my aunt for making me the photographer that I am, that I like capturing moments. I really hate to set up shots um, because as a kid, she would always try to get us to come together and always wanted to take photos. Um, but at the same time, I think I've I always had a camera since I was a kid. I always enjoyed um, taking photos and printing them. And even when I was in Iraq, like I was in the infantry supposed to carry my rifle but I always had I think at one point I ended up taking out two magazines so that I could put a small digital camera in there so that when we were in town I could take it out and take photos and I took amazing photos there I mean they were I don't think they're amazing like the quality I have now but I just really enjoyed it I, I enjoyed capturing that moment yeah, yeah just capturing those moments and I and I would get in trouble all the time for it. You know, my <laughs> lieutenant would be like, Fleming, get the camera out of here. Get the gun, you know, carry. I'm like, okay, cool, cool, fine. 
but I never took courses to become a photographer. I've had friends like Al's really helped me out. He's got a great eye for, you know, he was in editing for, for a long time in production. And so he kind of helped and, and would critique me. And I've always been open to sort of critiquing of my photos. And as the years have gone on of shooting photos from a motorcycle, I've seen what works and what I like and what I don't like. And I'm very critical of my photos. If it's if it's any blurry or whatever, it's, it's, it's out. But it's really come through trial and error and just wanting to capture beautiful moments of my adventures. Yeah. There's been a couple of things that I've noticed is that you're very present as a photographer, which means that you find a way to kind of, in a fluid way, be a part of the scene as the photographer, which that's, people are awkward with cameras oftentimes. Yeah. I feel like that I'm awkward with cameras mm. when I could do a better job of that. But you, I mean, you're tall. How tall are you? Uh, six, seven. So you're yeah. six, seven. <laughs> but what you do is you, you just kind of crouch down yeah. and you, you drop below the sight line. And not only does that give you a great vantage point, but it allows you to, for people not to focus on yeah. you. I've got a squatting position. Um, I'm quite flexible, so I just literally spread my legs wide apart and I drop my butt basically to the ground and yeah. I can get those low shots. And and I do try to, I, I don't want to be seen as a photographer. I do want people to just do their thing. And a lot of times I'll just slowly step back and and just try to grab a scene. Um, and you do, a, you really, you really do achieve that. And And I've also noticed that your camera kit is is very small, minimalist. You, you run with a couple bodies, usually with a prime on there, yeah. and and as a result, I mean, even it's cool to see. Like you'll be riding down the road, and you'll have a camera slung over your neck uh, with a rel like a thirty five millimeter prime on there, yeah. like no uh, lens protector, no no UV no. filter. <laughs> no, I mean, and we're we're like. <laughs> bombing down these dirt roads and everything. And I mean, your cameras look like they both went through Iraq, yeah. but it, it's pretty amazing. It's just a reminder that, and they're, they're very nice cameras and very nice lenses, but they're not extreme expensive pieces of equipment. They're like super appropriate for what we do, but the quality of the, your imagery is so exceptional because I think that you focus on capturing the image, not the stuff, not the right. equipment. And yeah. That's a nice result. Yeah, I'm not like a beauty photographer, you know, like... Which a, is a good thing because you're taking photos of me. <laughs> I'll make that pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any, you know? there's no amount of Photoshop that's going to fix that photo. Like, like in the motorcycle industry, one of the guys that, you know, I've always looked up to and I, I really respect his work is Aaron Brimhall. And he's, um, I mean, the stuff he shoots is, it's beautiful. I'm not that type of photographer. And so I've embraced my style of shooting. And I think that's, it's a huge step is when you embrace your own style and you stick with it. And I, I couldn't, I would be wasting my time to try to chase other photographers style. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's my kit of every once in a while, like, you know, just, uh, when I was in India, I rode for like seven days and my sensor was, it was disgusting. And, you know, there's some photos I took on the beach and you can just see these spots all in the sky. And I had to, I had to touch them up. Um, but luckily, my camera, so I'm now on my third and I'm on my third X-T2. And the one I had previously, it was beat to hell. Like, it looks like it should be in a museum. Yeah. <laughs> and when I came back from India, they replaced it and they swapped it out with a new one. And I picked it up in the office. I put it through my eye. 
and I was like, oh, that's what a camera is supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like when you, when you pull it up to your eye. It was so clean. Yeah. It was beautiful. So I'm not huge on care and like meticulous cleaning of camera gear. I, I wipe with, I've got a good shirt that I, I do wipe the lens with, but... Yeah, I think you'd make you'd make other photographers like cringe if yeah. they saw how you treat it. <laughs> sure. no but you don't focus can. on it, it doesn't matter. No, I don't but want the it. moment matters. That's yeah. so huge though, because exactly, right, Alan? He mm. he's in the mo you're in the moment, yeah. you're present, yeah. and the and the camera is at the ready. And a lot I mean, my camera's buried in my bag, and so I've got to be intentional about taking it out and because I'm trying to I it's, I'm being precious with it, right? So I'm not, I'm maybe caring for it a little bit more, but I'm missing 90% of the images that you're grabbing. And yeah. I think that that's, that's a great lesson for those that are listening. If you have a passion for photography, make sure that the camera's at the ready. Yeah, if uh, it's in a pocket, that's just one more thing you've got to do to capture that moment. Um, that's why I always keep it slung, it's ready, and then I can you know, jump off the bike jump into the grass, get a shot of you guys, you know, this, this week. And that's what I would do a lot of times, just speed past you guys and then look up ahead and find a spot. And then sometimes I only have five, six seconds before you guys are yeah. right behind me again. Amazing. Yeah. yeah amazing. Yeah. And, and Alan, you're riding this 900 Triumph, which is, I mean, it's a great looking bike. You've got a nice, a great exhaust on it, which it seems like the locals love. I mean, you get a lot, a lot of thumbs up, a lot of smiles and waves. And I think a lot of that is because Swaziland is such a smiling, waving yeah, country. Indeed. The people here are beautiful. And it's been fun to, to follow you on that bike. You ride it really well. And you guys have a lot of experience exploring the back roads of, of Southern Africa in these, in these modern classics. What kind of turned you on to Triumph as a brand? And is this your favorite bike? Is this the pinnacle for you? Or would you want something different? What connected you to Triumph? You know, it's interesting, Scott, for me, uh, being a musician, a guitar to me was a Fender Stratocaster. Yeah. And other people will tell you that a guitar to them was a Gibson Les Paul. But to me, a guitar was a Fender Stratocaster and a motorcycle was a Triumph Bonneville. Um, and a 1969 Bonneville was what a motorcycle looked like. And my dad passed away when I was quite young, but I have a photo of him that surfaced somehow. He grew up in England in Birmingham in the, in the 40s and 50s. And I have a photo that surfaced of him that my mom found or something like that and was in a picture frame. And I took it and, and, and I, I studied that photo. And it was a motorcycle made in Birmingham in the 40s or 50s that he was riding. And, I, and that was actually what got me into motorcycling. I, I didn't grow up riding a dirt bike. Uh, growing up with a, a single... Uh, you know, a mom as, as a parent, there was no way I was going to get on the dirt bike. She was never going to allow that. Sure. So I was about 24, 25 years old and I had this photo and I was like, I, I want to get a, like my dad rode a motorcycle. I want a motorcycle. And that's what a motorcycle should look like. And it actually, ironically, it wasn't a Triumph. It was a, I think it was an Ariel um, Colt 350cc motorcycle. And at the time it was about 2013, 2014. I think that the bike that appealed to me that looked like that was a Royal Enfield because it still looked as though it was made in Britain and it still had the, the styling features of that bike. Uh, so that was my first bike, but I always wanted the Triumph Bonneville. But it, uh, the Royal Enfield was super affordable. They just imported them into the country. How long did you have that bike? I had it for two years. Yeah, two and years. Did, did you travel on it or just ride it around Joburg mostly? Um, no, we didn't travel with it. It was mainly a commute. Yeah, like I commuted to <coughs> and back from work. I went around. My, my brother-in-law also had one, and we spoke about once maybe doing a trip to Durban. And I think we did, but we, we put the bikes in the back of the car at the time. Sure. Got to Durban. We rode them around there. I, I was a, like a lightweight. I, I, I didn't really know how to ride a motorcycle. I, I got my license, um, but I wasn't 
I wasn't proficient sure. as a rider by yeah, any means. Some skills. Um, and I knew that it was inevitable that I would, as I would grow more into riding, that I would upgrade. And I bought a Triumph Bonneville. Um, and finally, I owned the bike that I kind of always wanted to own. And yeah, I loved my Triumph Bonneville. It was a T100 black, uh, they called it. So it was full, fully black, uh, black exhaust, black everything. And I loved it. And then fortunately, I had a, a pretty gnarly accident. And that sent that bike to the scrapyard. And I then was faced with the decision that I needed to buy a new motorcycle and I didn't know what I was going to buy. So I immediately replaced it with a secondhand Bonneville that was available quite quite affordably on Gumtree. And I rode that whilst I was just buying time because I'd heard that Triumph was going to be working on a, a liquid-cooled uh, version of their bikes. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not, I haven't been riding bikes for 30 years, so I'm not going to be someone to tell you that liquid-cooled is better or worse than air-cooled. I couldn't really care. I was more interested in what it looked like and how it performed. And as soon as the 900 Scrambler was announced, I was a little bit disappointed because I I was kind of anticipating more of a Scrambler-looking motorcycle, which I think is exactly what you're on at the moment, on the 1200. But the 900 was announced, and I'd actually t- said to Joe that I wasn't going to buy it. I was like, oh, I'm not going to buy the 900 Scrambler. I'm going to wait. There's something more Scrambler-esque coming yeah, out. Sure. Um, and then I rode it. <clears throat> and... To answer your question, yes, it is the most perfect bike for me. I have thought about selling it on several occasions when a new model's come out. So when the 1200 Scrambler came out, I thought, maybe I should get rid of my 900. I'm going to save up. Yo, how much do I still owe the bank? Came me up. Maybe I should. But, um, and Joe will uh, profess to this statement, is that I just, that bike and myself are just, we're like married together <laughs> in terms of fit Oh, styling, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's and great watching you ride it. It's funny, you know, when we do these trips, fly. when we do these trips, we've got a lot of guys that come with us on varied bikes. We've got everything in the mix, and and a lot of guys will look down on a small little bike like that. And <laughs> and I love I love disproving them, not with arrogance, but just with the, the pure that you know. Sometimes riding a nine hundred and riding it better than a guy on a twelve fifty or twelve ninety or twelve hundred, whatever, um, actually says a lot more. Um, yeah. than, than having an overpowered bike that you, you, you can't correct fast enough, you can't, you can't ride it properly, you can't, your feet don't touch the ground. So I always joke and I always say I'd rather be the fastest guy on a 900 than an average rider on a 1200. Well, and, and the, the bike's less expensive, you use less fuel. I mean, it, and it looks great. It isn't like it looks lesser than it looks i think it looks perfect yeah and i did exactly i, I put the accessories on that exactly what i wanted so i put the vance and hans uh, two into one pipe which i wanted because it sounds great and I, I do commute daily on that bike um my wife and i share a vehicle so the, the bike is my is my vehicle my daily um and i put like some dresser bars on the bottom led light bulbs um a little uh, luggage rack on the back and a pannier um yeah the it looks exactly what I want a motorcycle to look like. And it, it seems to me that Johannesburg has such good weather that you can almost get away with riding a motorcycle every day. I do ride every single day. I yeah. ride summer and winter, and most of the people that I ride with do the same. Yeah. Um, it's actually, summer is actually the worst time of the year to ride because of the risk of rain. Okay. So we have this crazy thing in Johannesburg where at least two, three times a week every day in summer, it will rain at about 4 p.m., which is roughly <laughs> aligned with trying to get home in time. Sure. Um, and we have these incredible electric thunderstorms. Um, but, I, you know, I always have my rain suit in the back and I always have a pair of boots on and I, I ride in the rain regularly. But this time of the year, actually now, from March right up until June, July, when it gets really cold, is the best riding time of, uh, of our year. Yeah, I, I think that we've had, I mean, we've had some rain. We've had some varied yeah. weather, but... For the most part, it's been within a perfect little tolerance zone. 
I think. Yeah, it's so great. Far, it's, it's, it's great. Pleasure. I mean, the we've been to Swaziland before where it's 40, 42 degrees during the day and it's 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 quite it's quite hot. It's quite challenging um, on these dirt roads for long hours. Um, you know, that's when you don't have a problem. But if you have a problem, it can be quite it can be quite challenging to be in that heat. So this has been the perfect weather. A little bit of cloud cover, nice cool breeze. If the bikes are moving, you're 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 cool. Yeah, I was totally comfortable. I mean, when when we have to stop and solve a problem where we're fixing a tire, like we had a flat yesterday, and that was a that was a good little adventure, and and we got into some more challenging terrain, and then this morning we had a really beautiful ride. It was incredible going through out to that dam. Really beautiful. Yeah, we love. I mean, we love Joe and I like very like attuned. We often ride. I'll ride up front because often I know the the road a little bit better than Joe, and Joe will ride at the back. And often I we always look for these little dirt roads that go to the side, yeah. and I'll look back to see if he wants to like do it or not. Well, I mean, we even do that in, in in when we're based in a vehicle. We're always like, hmm, where does that road. go? <laughs> we should see where I mean, that road goes. Look, there's a mount, there's yeah. a road going up the mountain. I think that's universal. Yeah. I think every everybody <laughs> that's road. listening to this podcast, whether yeah. they're in Norway or South Africa yeah. or or in Arizona, they're like, yep, I know that feeling when you pass by that dirt road that that climbs up the side of a mountain. That's what we did yesterday. We looked for the road that went yep. up the side of a exactly. the side of a mountain, and Joe nearly tried to make it to the top. That was imp- that was <laughs> yeah. impressive. Yeah. It looked like I had a gun. It looked like it, and then I, slow, I quickly realized no, I think I've chewed up too much here. That, yeah. that, that was that was funny because you and you you didn't go down or anything like that, but you were you were perched on the side of this hillside re- realizing like i'm not g- where, yeah. where am i gonna go i'm just gonna freeze here <laughs> like I, I got to a point where i'm like okay you've gone too far yeah um if i went any further i think it could have been quite disastrous and then i just stopped pulled the brakes and then looked at you well you guys are looking at me <laughs> what is he doing and i knew i could get some help and, and then you you taught me a, a very good lesson that i'll i'll remember for i mean forever now and we'll be able to tell people as well that. You know, oh, the failed incline, hill climb drill, yeah. Tip the bike into the incline, and then you can walk the wheel out little by little, and then that got it. That got the bike to turn ninety degrees, yeah, so that I could exit. And, and that's something I could have done on my own, which is great. I, I think if I would have been on my own there, um, I mean, I probably would have just dropped the bike and then dragged, dragged it, it around, and then sure. gotten back on it and gone. But um, it's always nice when you pick up those little pieces of things, right? So speaking of adventure bikes, we're, we're all traveling extremely light. Um, I think Alan, you might have the most stuff on your, on your bike, but we're all traveling essentially with one bag and it shows how you can do that. You can keep the bikes really light, especially in a country like Swaziland, because we're staying at these little lodges or, or what was the name of the first place that we stayed at? Bulembu. Bulembu. And, and, and tell us the story about that, of that little village. So Bulembu, it's an, it's an incredible little town. And I love this. I love the story behind it and how we found it. I don't even know, but we just stopped there. It's right on the border of South Africa at the border post called Josephsdal. And um, it was a very successful asbestos mine owned by the British um, and up until I think early 90s. And um, the, the, the mine was closed. It was liquidated a couple times, actually, but eventually it was completely closed and the town was abandoned. Everyone fled the town and they, they chose better 
pastures in, in Swaziland. Um, and it kind of coincided with the AIDS crisis in, in Swaziland at the time. And there was a lot of orphans that were, that were left behind as part of the AIDS crisis. And uh, the, the, the town, Bulembu, went through a couple of, I think the hands of the town changed a few times, but eventually it landed up in, in the church's hands, the Bulembu Ministries. And so Bulembu Ministry owns and operates the town now. And as part of the deal that they made, they look after 2,000 orphans in yeah, that town. Incredible. Uh, 2,000 AIDS orphans that they look after. And how do they do it? They do it through tourism as, as one of their pillars. They've got a lot of great mountain biking trails. Uh, obviously, ourselves visiting, they've got beautiful little um, residences that you can rent out. They make honey very successfully that they export. And then they also make bread that they export uh, throughout the rest of the community. So it's yeah, We a, ate a lot of that bread. We did. <laughs> yeah. and it's a, it's a non-profit organization that looks after orphan children. It um, was, yeah, it was really special. And, and all of the people there, you could see this. I mean, and, and so far, everybody in Swaziland has had this kind of joy behind their countenance. But those people seemed very relaxed. And like we were sitting out in the morning waiting to have breakfast. And we could hear the workers you know, singing in as they were working. It was just really... You no, know, it was incredible to hear that. Really special. Uh, that was really neat. So in our case, we decided to eschew camping and stay in these very affordable little lodges and little homestays. And uh, like the place that we stayed at last night had fast thatched roofs. and But the food was, in, was incredible. And it's one of those things that I think it's important for the listener to know is that you have this idea that overlanding has to include camping and this entire trip, we're not going to camp because our experience was made better by interacting with the locals and staying like right now at a game reserve where we see warthogs cruising around and there's cactus in the, I mean a cactus, there's, there's crocodile, <laughs> crocodile in the water, be, in the water behind us. Maybe I'm missing Arizona. But it was, it, I think it's made so much more rich when you're able to interact with a culture, especially one that's as special as this. Now, maybe with the draw of a place like Namibia, in addition to the people being beautiful there, but there's so much open space that you actually do want to do more camping in a place like Namibia, yeah. or if you're in the Kalahari where there's just not a lot of people and not a lot of infrastructure. So then the camping becomes the high point or the joy of, of, course. of that experience. But it also allowed us to pack super light and I've got a small ether d- duffel on the back of my bike strapped down. Joe, you've got a triumph top case and yeah. yeah. And then Alan, you've got a, just one pannier. Yeah, I've got a single pannier and a tank bag, which I just keep my, like the stuff I need, sunscreen, sure. sunglasses, tire pressure monitor, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, no, it was, it's, it's nice to be able to travel that simple and that light and you just kind of deal with it. Maybe not all your clothes are always clean or whatever, but you just kind of take each day as it comes. And I think that's pretty nice. I did, I did laundry in my room last night because I was just running out of stuff. And, and normally on my trips, I... I mean, being a photographer and also like, I don't know if I'm one of those big gadget guys, but I always like bring a torch, this, that. Um, and in the past couple of years, I've, uh, I've started taking notes of what I didn't use on the trip. Um, because I realize oftentimes I just get so overwhelmed of where is this or I need this. Um, and so for this trip, it was great to pack quite light. Granted, the first day I had 12 beers, you tall beers. You made a priority towards. Yeah, we needed beer for the first night. Uh, the, the night we, the place we stayed the first night, there's no alcohol in the town. So we, we prepared, we had 12 uh, Jack Black cans and um, 
I was so glad once those were gone because then I saved weight, saved space. Sure. And then everything basically fits in the bag now. Yeah, I think it's a, an important reminder, and it is something that we talk about on this podcast all the time, is that whether it's a 900 or an 800, both are very affordable motorcycles. Even the 1200 XC that I'm on comes in right at about $15,000, which can be $10,000 less than some competitors on the market. And we're traveling super light. We don't have a lot of gadgets, so it's experience rich. We're not distracted. I mean, I think I had a an Apple adapter so I could listen to music break. But like for the most part, I, I just don't have a lot of stuff with me that's making me worried or distracting me or yeah. fiddling with stuff on the bike. That's yeah, great to run lean. It is nice. Yeah. And then you can focus totally on the experience and like getting here today, we just like, there's a pool. We're going to go, you know, so we did have swim swimsuits, but yeah. there was enough room for that. That was important. <laughs> that was important to bring along. So that kind of brings us a little bit back to, riding motorcycles in Southern Africa. Alan, what what would you recommend? Someone that is maybe wants to travel in Southern Africa on a motorcycle, who do they connect with to, to rent bikes? You guys do trips as well. Uh, what, what would you kind of say is a, a high point adventure in addition to the one that I just did with you guys, but what would be like a high point adventure for someone that wanted to come and vi- visit Southern Africa on a bike? Yeah, look, this this terrain or this part of the world is so well documented for adventure motorcycle travel. Um, the market is incredibly saturated. Pretty sure if you went in, on Google right now and you just searched travel by a motorcycle in South Africa, you'd probably find 30, 40 different accredited sites where you could probably arrive at the airport, pick up your GS1200 and, and disappear with the GPX track. And we ourselves specifically don't focus on that. We one of the one of the things that I battled with as a motorcycle rider getting into the industry so much later on in life, I think it was 24, 25, is that the traditional motorcycling model didn't appeal to me. So living in Joburg and I had my Royal Enfield and we'd ride out to Hodebeersport Dam, which is where all the motorcycle riders go on the weekend. And I didn't enjoy it one bit. And I was like, that's so weird, you know, like I, I don't fit into this traditional model of motorcycling. And I, it's the same with adventure motorcycling. And, and so what we did is we kind of thought, well, like, I want to see I want to see Swaziland. I wanted to show Joe Swaziland. I wanted to show Joe Lesotho. He hadn't been, so we just kind of went and did like recce trips over and over again. And we figured out that these reccees, other people wanted to join us. And those other people that wanted to join us on those recce trips or on the actual trips, they didn't quite fit into the other crowds, whether the Hot Beersport crowd or the GS crowd or the KTM crowd or whatever the crowd was. It's irrelevant of what motorcycle. It was just a persona that was going on those trips. So what we did is we focused really on the experience, the stuff we do in between riding the motorcycle because riding the motorcycle is only one part of it. Um, and it's the same, like you guys always talk about it in overlanding. It's like, sure, like overlanding's great, but the destination is getting there safely. Like that's, that's why we do it. So what we really wanted to do is put together trips that's where the experience was everything um, and where people that were kind of like misfits and maybe didn't fit in with the traditional clubs or the traditional groups or they maybe didn't have the skills sometimes. You know, I found like a lot of, I found the same thing with like um, 4 by 4 is that it's like very macho, uh, very... It can uh, be a lot of ego, right? Yeah, it can be like super macho and like it's like quite intimidating. Like I, my first 4 by 4 vehicle was a Suzuki Jimny and I would arrive at these like 4 by 4 courses and there'd be all these guys and their defenders and the hand cruisers and stuff like that. And, and there's something about it, macho about it, that makes you feel a little bit um, like you're not worthy or whatever, you know, okay, the Jimny 
Jimmy's great card went to it goes yeah. anywhere. <laughs> but um, there's something about that, and we wanted to remove that. So that's that's essentially what Bonafide Motorco is, is that Joe wanted to explore the country. I wanted to show him the country. He wanted to shoot photos of me showing him the country. And other people wanted to do the same thing as us. And that was essentially how the business was born, is we just... So if you were going to give a, a top three trips... I think including this one here in Swaziland, really special. What would be your top three trips for people to come on in Southern Africa if you were to list them off? So Swaziland's definitely there. That's what, one of the reasons why we took took you here is that it is it's my favorite trip. The distances are short, but you can make the distances long and technical. So oh, yeah. you you know we're we're actually only thirty eight kilometers right now from the border, but we could take. 30 minutes to do that tomorrow or we could take four hours if we chose some dirt roads and we went up through the the reserves and so on and so forth if you're in trouble you're not far away from help there's always a city a petrol station a tire fixer repairer somewhere we've, we've the got, drums are got, yeah we have drums starting in the background yeah that's so, africa yeah that's africa so yeah swaziland's definitely my favorite trip um and uh, you know we've only scratched the surface we're literally sitting on the western border of swaziland like we yeah. and there's so much more to see in this country but this is a really beautiful part of it, it gives us a bit of everything um sani pass and lesotho we've done that numerous times it's yeah, a it's great beautiful. adventure the road's getting more and more difficult um due to the fact that no road works have been done on the pass in a couple of years but yeah, it's a, it's a really great country to go to. On the other side of Sony Pass, there's beautiful tar roads that have been laid. So it's a great place to get a bit of both. Last year, we did an amazing event um, in the Cedarburg, which is not an area that I had previously traveled in. And it is really beautiful. So that's just in between Cape Town and the Otaniqua Mountains. That whole area there, there's beautiful mountain passes. And we spent four days in that region. And that is a really special that's area. That's a beautiful place. Uh, so nice on the bike. Yeah, lovely yeah. on the bus. So yeah. Good. So like if you, you see, because we grew up in, in Johannesburg and we live here, we've mainly, you know, we've, we're so close to Lesotho, so close to Swaziland, we're so close to Kruger. So this is where we travel. But uh, if you grew up in Cape Town, you would travel in the Cedarburg. It is a beautiful, it's known as leopard country. So there's, there's hundreds of leopards out in that area. And it is just beautiful, beautiful terrain and uh, beautiful dirt roads. It's a really special place. And I mean, I'm only talking about South Africa. Sure, now. sure. So if we go Southern Africa, um, you know, Botswana is just so special. A couple hours to the border, you're in Botswana. It's really beautiful. One of the things, one of the challenges with Botswana is that there's a lot of straight, long roads. And if you go off-road in Botswana, it's immediately Into beach sand. sand. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you want to let down your tires and, and do take four hours to do 20 kilometers, then, yeah, Botswana's sure. the place to go. <laughs> um, Namibia is also, like, really well-documented for riding, but often more so on adventure and dirt bikes. Um, sure. But uh, Joe and I have dreams to take modern classics to those very destinations yeah. through the Makhadi pans in Botswana, uh, all along to the skeleton coast in Namibia. Like, it, it can be done. Yeah. So, like, you know, we've also, uh, part of the, the tale of one of our business models is to offer training because we realize that a lot of people, A, you don't need th the best motorcycle to do these trips, but one thing you definitely need is a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of help. So we've really focused on that because then you will take your vulnerable T100 up Sony Pass. Yeah, I, I've always felt that if people would just invest the first dollars that they would spend on their vehicle or their motorcycle on training, it would completely not only change how well they performed as a driver or a rider, it would change the things that they would buy too. Because they would realize, oh, what I actually need is when everything else fails, I need a way to get unstuck. Or like we found when all else failed, you need a way to 
fix a tire or whatever, you, you find out that the things that you need are totally different once you have that training and experience. So if, if there, is there a story that you've always wanted to tell? Is there, is there an adventure that you've always wanted to go on and document with, with video, with motion? Is there, is there ever been something that you'd, you'd love to go there and do this? I think, I think um, I've done a couple trips uh, to Botswana where, uh, in a vehicle, in a car. Um, and I'm desperate to do that on a motorcycle um, yeah. and for it to be documented properly. And I'm desperate to do it on a modern classic, on, a, on what most people would think is a less capable motorcycle. I mean, I, w- I could probably go on YouTube right now and find 100 videos of guys riding uh, more appropriate motorcycles through Botswana and Namibia. But uh, I'd love to go and do it on a on a Bonneville with standard tires. Um, I think it could totally be done. I mean, like we saw today, just just like I'll be up on the pegs and thinking I'm all hardcore, and then you come around a corner and here's somebody in a CRV just like picking their picking their way, the locals picking their way through. So I I think like to your point about Sony Pass, I mean the one thing that a bike like the 1200 XE allows is a lot more speed. So you can travel across the terrain at much higher speeds because it can take larger events, right? Whereas if you just slow down, yeah. think about, I mean, every local in the world, a 125 or they're on a 150 little Honda with, with their buddy on the back and the buddy's holding a goat, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and, they, and they get through all of the same stuff that we do. So I think it's totally feasible. In fact, it might even be a little easier when your feet are closer to the ground and you're not traveling so fast. Always the case. Yeah. Feet close to the ground. Yeah. And, and slightly slower speed. But I mean, that makes you enjoy what you, you get to look, you get to see things. That's been one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this trip is that we have sections where we kick the speed up and we, we let it hang out there a little bit. Um, but then we slow down and we, we have a great lunch or we stop and talk to the locals and take, take selfies with their cameras. And yeah, it's, it's been, I mean, Southern Africa is, is amazing for me. It, it is definitely this draw to continue to come back. So Joe, tell the listeners where they can learn more about you. Um, where do they find you on Instagram? Um, so being I'm six, seven, I've got a very appropriate Instagram handle. It's so tall right now. So tall right um, now, yeah. I think and, it was kind of a spinoff of like so hot right now, but <laughs> not that I'm so hot right now, but I was like, I'll take so tall right now. <laughs> so yeah, most of my work is all on um, so tall right now, like a documented. Most of my stuff goes up there. That seems to be the best platform for me. Um, yeah, so Instagram and then um, both Alan and myself run the Bonafide Moto Co. Uh, Instagram account as well. And then, um, and then if somebody comes to Johannesburg and they need a haircut or a beard trim, yes, they will tell them a little bit about your (laughs) part of your day job. Yeah. So the, the other uh, pillars of Bonafide. So actually how Bonafide Motoco started was through, um, Bonafide beards kind of backtracking. I've had an amazing talent of growing facial hair. (laughs) <laughs> and in the military, my lieutenant called me chops because I would push the limits on my sideburns. I hated shaving because I have to shave every day. Um, I had uh, my wife enjoyed me on Instagram because uh, I had a handlebar mustache when I lived in, <laughs> in San Diego. So I've always had facial hair. So my wife said, you know what? I'll... So she made a beard bomb. And I think the first batch was close. Second batch, spot on. And I loved it. So we came up with Bonafide Beards, got a website, and all of our products that we've had through the years are all natural. And after a couple years of selling the product, we were like, you know what, we need a retail space. 
And there was a coffee shop near our house called Urban Grind. Um, big wood-clad building. They make yeah, sweet. They, they make the best cup of coffee in Johannesburg. Um, and um, we got to know the owner, and he had some space. And he said, "Look, I'll build a shop for you." So he started building the shop, and and it, it was the first time in my life that I actually had a hot towel shave. And th- and that yeah. was actually probably one of the first times in my life that I was really jealous that I didn't have hair because I wanted I wanted to have the, ex- the experience. So yeah. being bald, I've not been in many barber shops in recent years. So. Yeah. And then Alan, how do how do people find out more about you on Instagram? Yes, yeah, so you can find me Alan Shenton on Instagram, um, otherwise Bonafide Motorco. Uh, our website is www.bonafidemotorco.com. We run everything through there. There's a lot of content on there. All of our events are announced on there. So, yeah, that's a great place to catch up with us. Well, and it, it's been so fun hanging out with you guys. Obviously, you guys produce great content that we feature in the magazine. But most importantly, I consider you guys great friends. And it was so nice to enjoy Southern Africa with you. And hopefully I'll get you both out to America <laughs> for some adventures. But I think we're going to wrap up this podcast because the locals they're dancing around the fire. And there's a very cool vibe happening right now. <laughs> in Swaziland. So we're going to let you all go and we're going to get right back to the adventure. So we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.